Welcome to Better Worlds Ocean, where we dive into discussions on cutting-edge technology, data-driven solutions, and groundbreaking innovations aimed at tackling oceanic challenges. Join us as we ride the quest of a new era in global sustainability and work together to preserve our oceans for generations to come. Hello and welcome back to Better Worlds Ocean podcast series, where we dive into the world of data, innovations, and insights around the ocean that are helping us make change for the future. Today, I'm joined by Ernst Vanderpol with Connect Ocean in Costa Rica. Ernst, tell us a little bit more about your work with Connect Ocean and where you're calling us from today. Thank you, Kate. I am calling you from Guanacaste, uh, which is the northernmost province in Costa Rica. Uh, we just, uh, you know, a couple of hours from the Nicaraguan border on the Pacific side of Costa Rica. Uh, thank you very much for having us today. And it's, uh, it's an honor for me to share a little bit of what we do at Co uh, Connect Ocean Conservation and Outreach. So uh, how about I start off just to tell you a little bit about what Connect Ocean does. Uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, so, that'd be uh, great. And then we'll get a little bit more into your journey about how you came to do this work. Absolutely. So uh, Connect Ocean, as our name aptly says, uh, we exist to connect people to the ocean, you know, and uh, we believe that this is very important because we, we live on an ocean planet. So one of my favorite quotes is Arthur C. Clarke, which is uh, one of my favorite science fiction writers. Uh, he looked at a picture that was taken from the moon landing and uh, he said, how strange is it for us to call this planet Earth one is quite clearly ocean? You know, and we live on a planet that's 71% covered uh, by the oceans, but yet we know so little about it as a collective community. So, uh, so Connect Ocean, we, we try and strive and try and get everyday people to understand that their lives are connected to the ocean. You know, uh, when we think about the fact that only about 5 to 8% of our world's oceans have been explored, it kind of makes sense that a lot of people have a disconnect when it comes to understanding the importance of these marine ecosystems, right? So uh, a big part of what we do is we engage people in something called place-based education, where we recognize the fact that knowledge about conservation in areas are important, but we know that a lot of people learn about extraneous topics that maybe involves areas that's not geographically close to them. And what we want to try and do is get people to explore, to understand the ecosystems in their backyard. So we grow up in a day and age now where people know a lot about the Atlas Mountains and the Sahara, but they can't even name the shrub or the bird in their own backyard. And this is really what Connect Ocean is, is covering at the moment. You know, we are finding ways, okay, for people to go out and their local communities to discover things about the ecosystems in their own backyards. And what we are trying to do is to get them connected with civil society and research groups in their own backyard where they can actually find out how they can make a difference. Uh, and then the last thing that we do over there is basically creating a how-to guide, okay, or a recipe for local communities to be able to create something called a regenerative community-managed hope spot, which is essentially crowdsourcing conservation uh, through citizen science. So the perpetuated continuity you know, through all of this is engaging local communities through citizen science where they can use their observation skills to collect data points okay, from their local ecosystems and essentially helping us map out these ecosystems in their own backyards to 
enable us to come up with strategies and work with civil society and government to better protect these ecosystems. Fantastic. That is a that is a full plate of work from the human engagement to the policy engagement to the science pieces. And it's a project that you've been involved evolving over your whole career is my understanding, because you started diving pretty early, right? And not in Costa Rica. You come from a very different ecosystem and you kind of first got under the water in a very different part of the world. Absolutely. I was uh, 19 years old the first time I ventured off into the ocean and uh, I dived on uh, Alival Shoal, which is a very famous site in uh, South Africa where I did my open water course. But uh, the majority of my diving has been done in the Middle East. I was based in Dubai for about uh, 12 years prior to me coming out to Costa Rica. And uh, the project you know, that we have working, uh, that, that I'm working on at the moment, used to be called Tawasul which is Arabic to connect. And uh, the origin behind that was uh, I became a scuba instructor and I was teaching a group of kids in Dubai. Now, for those of you that don't know, Dubai actually had the largest environmental footprint per capita due to the uh, usage of uh, you know, electricity and environmental footprint per person. <clears throat> and uh, I was asking these young people at the school, what do you guys do over the weekends? You know, uh, what do you do to hang out? And uh, the answer kind of surprised me. They would say, well, we spend most of our times indoors, you know, and I go, why? And they go, well, that's where the electrical outlets are, you know, to play Wi-Fi and play video games and everything like that, you know. And I, I realized, you know, um, you know as, a, as a species, okay, we completely disconnected from nature, right? You know, we, here we were moving in a certain direction due to technology, and we were no longer like the indigenous people, okay, that used to live very closely to nature. And then therefore, also, this gets reflected in the way that we protect and conserve these ecosystems. And that was essentially the catalyst and the spark that made me think about what do we need to do to challenge the way that people are learning and experiencing, okay, nature. And therefore, uh, Connect Ocean gave birth, okay, to this place-based education program or to Wassel right in the heart of Dubai in the Middle East. So it's interesting that you had that insight while kids were talking to you about how, well, we, we stay inside because that's where the technology is, because diving is kind of an interesting hybrid of high and low tech, right? At, 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 on, on one level, it's just getting a person underwater, which is pretty basic, and you can do that with just a plastic snorkel and a pair of fins, but the diving that you are training people to do and that you are encouraging people to do to connect more with the ocean can be very technical and involve all kinds of fancy gear and buoyancy regulators and watches and all of that. So, you know, can you just talk a little bit about how technology is an enabler to reconnecting to nature or how you see the kinds of tools, especially as you get into training people to use technology to do citizen science, you know, what's the kind of thread for you that keeps it very grounded in nature while still taking advantage of these innovations that let us measure, monitor, and go deeper underwater? Well, learning to dive is actually not that complicated at all, you know, and for a non-diver, any person that hasn't been diving before, literally if someone walks in from the streets, I am able to get them to blow their first bubbles under the water after doing about a half an hour poolside briefing, maybe another 30 minutes in water skill development and then taking them out in the ocean to be able to experience it. And, uh, 
you know, another quote that kind of, you know, sticks with me is a guy called David Berry that says, uh, you know, we don't understand the true meaning of the ocean or the true purpose of the ocean uh, by looking at the surface, just looking at the surface. It's only once you stick your head under the water that you truly understand, okay, the purpose of the ocean. He says it's kind of like going to the circus and looking at the outside of the tent, okay, by looking at the surface, you know. So, so therefore, you know, getting people to realize that they can be an explorer, okay, is one of our first steps. And you an explorer, even if you just snorkel or explore an intertidal zone, you know, you don't physically have to go under the water to be able to forge that connectivity with the ocean. It could be as simple as going out and doing rock pooling and looking at a sea star or an enemy inside of the water. Now, as far as technology is concerned, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we have now with uh, technology developing is that we're spending more and more time on our screens. Okay, so therefore, you know, we our telephones and our iPads and everything like that, you know, becomes a source, a source almost where there's a, an imbalance in it. And, and the question that we ask ourselves, is technology bad or is it good or is it just the way that we use it? But actually, okay, the technology of having thing, access to smartphones affordably has been a game changer, okay, when it comes to actually um, exploring, okay, our own backyard and ecosystems over there because the power of these things in our pockets are more powerful than the computers that put the first man on the moon. So what we've been able to do, okay, as part of the Connect Ocean Citizen Science Explorer program that we're developing is to sit down with scientists and research organizations to come up with citizen science protocols that we could actually teach people within a very short period of time to use their observation skills to then collect data from an ecosystem when they go snorkeling or diving. And we're able to take those data points and upload it onto a survey platform that allows us then okay, to bank that data on an ArcGIS database that would then allow us to layer that data over each other which is great because that narrative of that data is essentially what's going to help us to come up with the strategic steps to then better manage the ecosystems in these communities. That's great that you are linking these observations using a variety of tools, low-tech, high-tech, cheap, as well as kind of fancy, sophisticated software like ArcGIS web servers for this geographic information system data. What can make citizen science so powerful is having it be tied to these kinds of policy goals or local community goals that you mentioned earlier as a key part of how Connect Ocean works. How do you figure out what are the right scientific questions to research and how to come up with the protocols to gather the data? Well, you know, this is a very important question. Um, you know, so first of all, uh, we, you have to understand what citizen science essentially is, okay? So, so when we historically think about science, okay, it's basically something that's been quite exclusive, you know, for a small demographic of people that had the means or the financial, uh, can I say, support to be able to maybe go to university or something like that. But citizen science is all-inclusive. No matter who you are, okay, uh, where, what your background is, okay, you can participate and you could make a difference. One of the key things that we realized over here is that people, indigenous people, and also people that are working as fishermen and, and, and people that make a living out of the ocean, they have an inherent knowledge of the ocean that's far greater than even some of the top scientists you know, that we have you know, working in certain fields. So what, there's been a, 
ever big divide, okay, between the science community, okay, and uh, the general community that is out there. And this is one of the first steps that we're looking at bridging. How do we translate, okay, that science, the people that are out there that are doing the research that is telling us about climate change, that is telling us about coral reefs won't able to be repairing itself within a certain number of years due to ocean acidification, and how do we translate that to the masses? And this is really where citizen science kind of steps in, okay, because working with these experts in these fields, okay, and this is what we're seeking out uh, through Connect Ocean, is finding out who are the experts in their field, who is the top, uh, you know, people to go to when it comes to mangrove conservation, you know, who are the successful civil society NGOs or research groups, okay, that are doing great work when it comes to coral restoration, you know, who are the people that knows best about deep sea exploration or, or mantas, and what we're doing is we're working with these guys and say, what type, of, what type of data can we collect from an ecosystem that would help you, okay, be able to better plan strategically how to conserve these? And how do we then take that through this how-to guide in a way where we can teach it so that data, when it gets collected, is accurate and usable for the science community? I think that's such an important reminder of two of those key elements. Um, here in the United States, we sometimes call it participatory science or community-based science, just to get away from that word citizen, which can be highly charged, unfortunately, in some situations. But it's all the same idea that you were talking about, which is that anyone has the capacity to produce high-quality observation data about the world around them if it's done in a certain way that creates this protocol where the data is feeding into a kind of repeatable process. And that doesn't have to be a complicated barrier, right? Like that sounds like a lot of jargon, but it really is the kind of thing that can be as simple as someone going and walking their coastline at the same time every morning and just marking every bird they see, right? Like it can be that kind of thing where it's a standardized framework for people to gather that information. But when you do it over and over again, it creates this incredible data resource that scientists are often hungry for because they don't have any other way to get that information. They don't have the knowledge of where to go, where to find that data. Um, and it can feed into all of these other data sources that they're using to make predictions and, and assess conditions. So. It's fantastic that Ocean, that Connect Ocean is really digging into that work and making sure that, um, you know, this isn't just, hey, it's fun, use this sensor, it's really cool, but that, that what people are observing is feeding into a need and a process for being part of a larger scientific framework. Yeah, I can give you a very practical example of how we made that work great. in Tampa, Florida, for instance. Okay, so Connect Ocean, we got three pillars. We got Discover connect and protect. So the discover bit is basically the need to know, understanding about the ecosystem and, and learning about, okay, the importance of that ecosystem. We then move into the connect phase, which is basically taking the learners or the community to then connect to local conservationist NGOs or civil society group in their own backyard, the closest geographical connection that we can then work. And then we encourage these people after making that connection to then protect, which is either supporting existing projects that are out there or essentially creating their own. And we then use these how-to guides in order to build their capacity and teaching them how to set up these projects. So here's an example of what we did uh, remotely during COVID, actually, and, and to the tail end of COVID. So as, um, you know, as schools kind of moved into remote 
uh, mode during COVID and there was no uh, in-present uh, classes, we were approached uh, by a school in Florida uh, and, and Tampa to assist them with some enrichments program uh, that we had. And what we ended up doing is uh, taking a course where we followed a raindrop from its origin all the way down to the ocean. And then we had a look wow. at how watersheds are connected to the ocean and how even communities that are land-based, okay, plays a role in the health of ocean ecosystems. And what essentially what we ended up doing over there for the connect phase was then to try and find some real-life science uh, experts, okay, to be able to then present to the school and to the people. So we found uh, a very inspiring group of women uh, the one lady was led, uh, her name was Catherine Youngblood. She works with the Nature Conservancy and uh, she also uh, with George Washington. And they presented on a, a women-led uh, project that basically followed the Ganges River from its, uh, you know, all the way up to its origin. And they created something called a marine debris tracker where they had a look at all of the, uh, you know, the, the trash that was in the river and, and the origin points and where it came from. And uh, they kind of shared the adventure, you know, with a group of kids. And then essentially what we then ended up doing is getting uh, the participants then trained up how to use this marine debris tracker. We then worked with the local school teachers and we went to places like Clearwater and we did uh, intertidal explorer where we explored the five different intertidal zones doing rock pooling, but at the same time collecting this trash, okay, that was then collected using the marine debris tracker. So the data from this marine debris tracker has been designed in such a way that when you collect the trash, you can then kind of look at what is being created, where is it from, you know, and you can enter all of those things in very accurately. This data was then shared with a collective of NGOs that are active in the Tampa Bay area. So they were called Rise Above Plastics. And they were approximately, I think, 12 NGOs that were working very hard to stop the use of single-use plastic at county level, municipal level, and the Tampa Bay area. So this school was able to share the data with them. They had a look at that, and then through this conservation group, this collective, we were there, then able to identify a number of action points okay, that could then be communicated back to the school, which they could then run to get actively involved in their local community. So a good example of this was they found a lot of plastic forks, okay, and, um, you know, things that are used as takeaway restaurants. So they were then able then to go onto Google, for instance, and look at what are the restaurants in the area, okay, that would basically have uh, within that watershed, you know, that uses similar type of, you know, uh, utensils. And they were able then to schedule a meeting with the general manager of this restaurant and say, hey, congratulations on the success of your business. Uh, you know, we are... Uh, the middle school, you know, from such and such, and we did a cleanup, and this is what we found, okay, and we couldn't help but notice that you actually use this in your business, would you consider to change that to a more compostable or uh, a more environmentally friendly type of, uh, you know, utensil in order for us to be able to fight the use of single-use plastic? So therefore, not only do they learn about the data points, but they are integrating it, okay, with this civil society, and then these action points of integration, you know, to take action. And this is essentially what we're trying to do in communities. I think that's fantastic. And I, I really love that visualization. And I don't know if you were able to make visualizations of that watershed work, but, you know, that showing people a, 
a drop of water coming down as rain and and then flowing into the ocean. There's a website called River Runner that's done that for a bunch of watersheds in, in North America. And I think that's that can be a tool that really powerfully helps people understand the whole cycle of water and how it goes from oceans to atmosphere and then down back to the ocean through our weather cycles. And to have that integrated into your teaching and training platform is a, is a great opportunity. And the kind of work that you're doing, not that Connect Ocean shouldn't get engaged in all of these projects worldwide, but you know, it is the kind of project that we now have tools that a lot of people could take on. Like there's groups like Ellipsis and Literati and you know, groups like that that produce apps and tools that would allow any community group to go out, do surveys, find trash, find out where it's going, uh, photograph it, add it to training databases, report it to their local authorities if they have authorities that monitor trash, or go back to the businesses and say, hey, we found these cups with your logo on them and they're all over the beach. So what's up with that? Can you change that? Can you think about you know, getting involved with more trash cleanup using different biodegradable products? And so the fact that you're taking groups and communities and helping them connect that cycle and then lead that back to change is a, a really powerful level for, for ocean conservation. Before we kind of run to the end of our time, I wanna give you a chance to talk about this idea of regenerative tourism. And what is that and how does that differ from just basic tourism? Is it part of a general trend towards sustainable tourism writ large or does it have some unique characteristics? You know, so this is very important. You know, um, when you look at conservation models, okay, it's very important that you engage the local community. So unfortunately, when we have a look at marine protected areas or conservation areas, when you have a look at the statistics and the success rate, the ones that truly went out and consulted the local community first are the ones that are very often much more successful. So when you look at ones that have just been formed by governments, okay, or marine protected areas on paper, those are the ones with the true challenges. We have to understand that going into a local community, for instance, to try and create a marine protected area, we can't just expect the local people over there not to fish anymore. When we consider the fact that four out of 10 people live very close to the coastline without 100 kilometers, and that at least a third of our global population, the only protein source that they would get to eat today comes from the ocean, food security and the fact that what people are putting on their table during the day, okay, is directly linked to the ocean. So I'll give you a very good example of how we did this over here. So when we collected the data for, from our GIS database, we surveyed sharks and rays, different types, 12 different character groups of species, and also then boats, okay, that we found vessels in the local area. What we found out was that at least 56% of the boats, okay, that we found around this island here, and uh, Guanacaste, Las Catalinas, was small-scale fishing vessels. So now when we look at that, you know, at a global rate, you know, uh, research has been done, we know that approximately 50% of the world's global catch is caught by small-scale fishing vessels. So we realized that if we wanted to kind of create a little conservation area here or better manage this ecosystem, we need to engage these local fishermen. So we went out and we met with them and we tried to find out how much fish are you guys catching nowadays? We invited them for lunch. And they were saying, well, Ernst, you know, about 10 years ago, we, went, we would go out for three hours and we'll catch 90 pounds of fish. Now we go out for 12 hours and maybe we bring 30 pounds of fish. So we would ask them, why do you think that is? And they go, well, you know, maybe the species are migratory, you know, and things are changing. So there was very little understanding about what happens if you keep on catching fish on the same areas. 
We then asked them and says, well, you know, at the end of a 12-hour day, how much money do you put in your pocket after paying for your fuel and the staff and everything like that? They say, well, very often the only money that we then make is $20. So we would then say, well, why so little after 12 hours of fishing? They say, well, we don't have a cold chain. You know, so we have to sell this fish to a third-party intermediary group that allows us, okay, to then, uh, you know, make a living. Now, these guys buy this fish for anything between 7 to 17%. And then they take that fish all the way to San Jose, which is almost 300 kilometers, you know, to the capital of Costa Rica, and they sell it there to wholesalers. These wholesalers sell it back to restaurants and hotels back on the coastal area, almost the exact location where this fish is landed. So therefore, there's a massive long value chain. So one of the things that we then started doing with these fishermen is creating a regenerative tourism project where we said, okay, how about we go fishing, okay, for three hours, and we pay you 10 times what you would earn on a normal 12-hour shift. But what we want to do is take some of the, the tourists, okay, that we have in the area, and we want you to teach them how to use traditional handline methods. But the buy-in over there is once we catch that fish, we're going to use an app, okay, that would allow us then to check on that species. If the species is sustainable, if it's threatened, okay, or if it's endangered. So if it is threatened or endangered, we throw it back in, and we also want to make sure it meets the minimum size. And if it meets and the minimum size... And those are the CITES size, categories that you're using, right? Yeah, so, you know, so there's, the, a, there's a... Global a, listing of, of the status of species. And there's on. a number list of those, okay, that's out there. Seafood Watch, Monterey Aquarium. Over here, we use Mar Viva, you know, as a local NGO. And then typically when we catch that fish, okay, we would then go out to a local restaurant where the family of this fisherman would then cook it, okay, in a traditional way. So it's been a, a huge success with the project. And, uh, you know, the, the fishermen have been learning about the importance about selective fishing and catching responsible. Um, and, and then from that perspective, you know, they are able to catch less fish because some days we would go out there and catch 45 fish and we would only keep three of those fish. Whereas in the past, okay, they were not able to do that. They just kept all of that fish. But, okay, when we look at the success of the project, is it scalable? Can we take it to other places? Unfortunately, sometimes we go two or three times a week with these guys. So the other four days of the week, we have no way to gauge if they are following these practices or not. So currently, as next level, we are seeking uh, partnerships and funding to create something called a community-supported fisheries platform that will use AI technology and photo learning to be able to identify the fish once the person catches that. And if it's the right size and the right species, it would then upload it onto a virtual basket, okay, that would allow the fishermen to sell that directly to local restaurants or people in their community, shortening that value chain, allowing them to earn up to 70% more. So that is a very good example of how technology can be used, okay, through citizen science, okay, engaging and helping local communities earn more and fish less. It's a fantastic story, and, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about all of the work you're doing integrating all of these different threads between community, policy, activism, education, tourism, small-scale fisheries, and getting people underwater in 30 minutes or less. It's great that you are down there doing the work that you're doing, and we really appreciate you sharing your insights with us here on the Better Worlds podcast today. So thanks so much, and good luck with the rest of your day down there in Guanacaste. Thank you, Kate. And we hope to host you if you ever come and visit, and uh, 
looking forward to keeping in touch. Absolutely.